When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, this is Alan Clark at the Hollies, and you're listening to Pantheon Podcast. Pantheon Podcast presents Deeper Digs with host and rock and roll archaeologist Christian Swain. Music, culture, technology, and rock and roll. Now, on with the show. And in the end, the love you take is equal to the love you make, diggers. One of my favorite lyrics of all time. Of course, that is the last words spoken on the last Beatles album ever made. Well, yes, I'm leaving out the supposed to be left out, Her Majesty, that is. Uh, And in a minute, we will get to know our guest today, Uh, To have all of this make sense, Uh, Ken McNabb uh, with his new book, End in the End, The Last Days of the Beatles. So hold tight. Okay, business. Uh, Well, guess what? I'm on vacation. And since I'm recording this ahead of time, uh, not much business. Well, just a thanks for listening uh, and sharing with your friends. Uh, We've been getting a lot of mail these days and are extremely humbled uh, by your love and attention and affection uh, for all the work uh, we're doing uh, around here at Pantheon podcasts, um, you know, a lot from rock and roll archaeology and uh, yes, even some from uh, deeper digs here. So uh, please keep the cards and letters coming. Okay. Three real quickies. Keep telling friends. Let me tell you, that is working. Uh, Every month we get a larger and larger audience. And I know for a fact it's due to you guys actually doing the work for us by spreading the word. It's really incredible. We don't have a big budget for marketing uh, just yet. And, uh, you know, this has all been organic. And and, uh, it's just, I I don't know what to say. It's, it, um... It's very humbling. It's very nice. Um, Of course, you can support the project financially at patreon.com backslash rock and roll podcast. And now we have a one-time donation site. A lot of people have complained about Patreon. They don't like it. Uh, it's a uh, you know monthly uh, type of charge. Uh, they want a one-time donation. We've suggested PayPal. That doesn't seem to be uh, resonating very well. So we have this new thing. It's called Coffee dot com backslash pantheon and actually that's kofi ko dash fi dot com backslash pantheon uh and it's yeah it's a cup of coffee you know if you feel like a tip uh buy us a cup of coffee hell even if it's a one dollar dunkin's donuts coffee dunkin donut coffee costs a buck right i i I, d- I don't really go to Dunkin' Donuts, so I don't know. Um, but hey, I'll, t- I'll, I'll, I'll take a Dunkin' Donuts coffee if you want. 
Um, anyway, uh, if anyone else is interested in our investment opportunity I've talked about the last couple of weeks, uh, send an email to rockandrollarchaeologyproject at gmail.com. Um, that's probably going to come to an end here fairly shortly. Um, so we just wanted to put that out there for everybody uh, who listens uh, if they are interested. Because... Uh, we're, we're about ready to go into, we've been in soft launch for a couple of months now, and uh, we're about ready to go mainstream uh, here. 50 shows, uh, HD podcasting. Um, we've got some big news coming up uh, very shortly with a, a very large platform. Uh, and uh, probably I'll be able to announce it when I get back. So keep an ear open for that. Okay, that's it. Very short and sweet this week on The Business. Let's get into it. You never give me your money. You only give me your funny paper. And in the middle of negotiations, you break down. I never give you my situation and in the middle of investigation I break down Ah uh, yes you never give me your money written by Sir Paul um, thought to excoriate the devil in their midst uh, manager Alan Klein uh, without doubt, one of the big reasons for the demise uh, of the band in uh, 1969 and 1970. Uh, not the only one, for sure, uh, but um, we will see a, a big factor in the eventual demise of the Fab Four. Uh, with us today is Ken McNabb, who has written a very detailed look at the final year of the band, and in the end, the last days of the Beatles. It is a month-by-month -month account of the disastrous 1969 for the band. And while 1970 is really the death nail uh, of the Fab Four, most of that year, 1970, was more uh, the actual train crash. The year of 69 was where the wheels really start to fly off. Yes, uh, McCartney's self-interview, published on April 10th, 1970, is considered the historical moment most historians point to as the official end, though some others uh, point to December 31st of that year when Maka sues John, George, and Ringo uh, as the end. Uh, I, I kind of choose that because, I, you know, um, look, I, I, I do think uh, some, uh, mostly the public— who were completely ignorant of the internal events held uh, that, you know, continue to hold out hope. Uh, there was no internet. You weren't getting real-time information. Uh, you know, uh, it was a very uh, opaque uh, behind the scenes. Uh, most of what we know comes out much later. Um, but let's face it, once you sue your bandmates, uh, highly unlikely a kumbaya is in the future. Um, and as we know, that really was the end. Uh, the four never held the stage together again, um, though I, I wonder if John um, had not been murdered, if they would have um, 
done so uh, at some big, important event. Uh, it's a question that will be asked of Mr. McNabb here in a minute. Uh, were there other reasons for the uh, death of perhaps the single greatest cultural phenomenon of the 20th century? Oh, hell yes. I mean, uh, certainly Yoko, or more specifically, what John expected from the other three when it came to Yoko, is plenty of noise to cause rifts. And while she was an easy target to pin things on early, uh, as time wore on, we found her situation was really only the tip of the iceberg, as they say. George, uh, realizing he should be treated better as a songwriter, is another big, ugly situation. Uh, as we know, uh, he goes on to do some incredible work post-Beatles. And let's face it, uh, his contributions on the last album, Abbey Road, are stellar. Um, well, really, you know, all of the, the, the individuals shine uh, after uh, words uh, uh, in various uh, incarnations throughout the 70s. And that is great. Um, but of course, the sum of their parts and all of what could have happened had they soldiered on is, you know, always um, subject to debate, if you will. Um, but I also think just growing up as men and wanting their own identities in the universe is a huge factor. I mean, you know, we all grow up and life changes. You know, a band is like a gang, especially when you're young. Uh, but then you get married, you settle down, uh, you have kids, uh, and you end up getting tired of that other marriage. You know, the one with several other people in it. And let me tell you, it's hard managing all, all of that. Well, at least until the kids are grown and midlife comes and you desperately want back in the gang. Anyway, all of these issues are addressed in an investigative manner by our guest uh, today, who is a journalist after all, so no surprise. Ken McNabb is a lifelong Beatles fan and well-respected journalist with Scotland's Evening Times. He lives in Glasgow with his wife and children. Um, and this is his second book on the Scousers Who Changed the World, uh, the first uh, very appropriate uh, title being The Beatles in Scotland, um, which was published in 2008. All right, let's get into it. Let's dig in, as we say around here. Here is Ken McNabb. One stores away to get back Stores away to get back home. Sleep, pretty darling, do not cry. And I will sing a lullaby. Golden slumbers Welcome to Deeper Digs, Ken McNabb. How are you doing today? I'm very well, Christian. Thank you very much for having me on. 
Of course, of course. I, I think you're, you're uh, coming to us from uh, way up in the, the northern reaches of Scotland. Yeah, I normally uh, live in the very central regions of Scotland, but I am away from my home for about a week. And uh, I'm looking out at a very, very misty Edinburgh, mm. uh, the definition of Scotch mist. Yeah. And it's like something we could do, for those who remember. And, uh, but no, it's nice to get away. And uh, my wife and I are up in, uh, in a place in Scotland called Fife. But it's very nice to be away. I've got lots of things to keep me occupied, uh, lots of writing to do. Uh, but it's cool. It's good. Oh, yeah, I bet. I bet. Everybody deserves a little vacation now and then. Uh, so, well, let's uh, let's dive into your, your book, End in the End. Um, so I guess the first question might be, and, and you know, this is a, a sort of an obvious one. A lot of people uh, have asked that, but let's get your opinion on it. If John Wooden had been murdered in 1980, do you think uh, the Fab Four uh, would have ever returned to uh, record and tour again? I very much doubt it, Christian. I, I very much doubt it. There, there were lots of discussions over uh, in the 10 years that followed the band's breakup. Um, and I think there were discussions where maybe at one time you might have two of them on the same page, yeah. three of them yeah. on the same page, but never was, there a, never was there an occasion where all four of them agreed it would have been a good thing. Mm -hmm. And the reasons for that are many. The first thing to remember is that um, when they split up officially in 1970, there was a, a, a terrible reservoir, a terrible legacy of bad feeling between them, yeah. um, because they had been they had been mushroom growing inside a beetle hothouse for so long that it's inevitable that you know uh, you know people's lives go in different directions. They shear off in different directions. They get older. They form new associations, new partnerships. Um, but there was never a point, and it did take some time. For those wounds to heal, and and even in the sh and and remember, you know, I was I was thinking about this the other day that we all think of disc songs being involved with uh, been identified with rappers like Tupac and Biggie, um, but the original disc songs came from Lennon McCartney, <laughs> you know, yeah. because they would, uh, they would have you know make pointed barbs at each other through their songs through their lyrics. And these songs, these wounds took a long time to heal. And we all know about How Do You Sleep, which is probably right. one of the most venomous takedowns <laughs> in music history. Uh, so it did take some time for them to, to reconcile, to put enough distance, to put, to put enough blue water between them all, and then for them to at least have some kind of reconstructed friendship, in a sense. But by the time it gets to 1975, which is not a long time, really, when you consider bands nowadays, can take five years to make an album. But by the time it gets to 1975, John Lennon is reconciled with Yoko Ono again. They have a son called Sean. And he says, well, guys, whatever happens, I'm taking five years out now to look after, to give my son, my second yeah. son, attention I neglected to give mm. my first son because right, I'm so caught up in my career. So there was never at any point, Christian, where they were all on the same page. And I'm quite... I'm quite grateful for that because, you know, it couldn't have been about the money. If they had got back together, it would have to be about the music. But I think oh, they've really, been they've been throwing all kinds of uh, money at them. Yeah, uh, 
including $3,500 from uh, Lauren Michaels, yeah. uh, which was probably the closest to the, 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 the serious offer that they might have actually <laughs> followed up on. Uh, that, that was the only one that, that maybe, uh, just because of the joke of it and being Goons fans and Saturday Night Live being the next iteration of, of the Goons, if you will, uh, they, they might have actually done that. It's a, it's a great story because Lennon and McCartney were actually mm. watching the show together. Mm. Um, and I'm not quite sure we've ever quite got to well, I, I think George showed up the next week and said, okay, let me have the check. And, and was like, well, no, no, it was for all four. Go, well, I'll just take my piece of it. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. it's, a great, it's a great deal, isn't it? Yeah, yeah. I don't, I don't know if I can. I, I, I agree, Ken. I, I mean, certainly you're right. Uh, in the 70s, it would not have happened. But, you know, I think of Live Aid in 1985, and I think if John, you know, had not been murdered, um, that, that, that sort of cause uh, fits right in their wheelhouse uh, for all four of them. And uh, they could have been persuaded to, uh, to come back together, at least for a one-off. Uh, for something like that. And, you know, by the time you get into the mid 80s and certainly into the, the 90s and definitely into the 2000s, you start to see some of these bands that had, uh, you know, a, a lot of acrimony uh, at the end and what have you get back together um, because of the nostalgia uh, 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 side of things. And the reality that, you know, especially for these four guys, uh, while they did some some great stuff um, on their own, each of them individually, and we'll talk a little bit about that in a, in a bit, um, <clears throat> they together knew that, that you know, the, and, and, you know, being a musician myself, <clears throat> you know, there, there's sometimes you find magic, and it's hard to replicate that. And let's face it, I, I don't think there's any four musicians that have achieved more magic than these four guys. No, absolutely. I mean, John Lennon had a, a very strong sentimental streak flowing mm -hmm. through, and 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 it would have it would have come down to John. I mean, sure. You know, oh yeah, it, it would definitely come, would have come down to John. Yeah, yeah. yeah Paul would have probably do done it. Uh, Ringo in a heartbeat would have done it, uh, and George probably would have begrudgingly went along. George would have, George would have been a, a reluctant conscript, but I think yeah. that if Lennon had leaned on him enough, then. Uh, I and mean, it's a very interesting scenario about Live Aid. And I have thought about this, about whether Bob Geldof would have been persuasive enough to, you know, to, to convince them that this was the proper platform, this was the right cause. Um, but I, 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 I'm not quite convinced that they would have done it. I don't think Lennon would have liked the idea of, of him being manoeuvred into doing it. I mean, there was always talk about Live Aid that, that uh, Geldof did have conversations with George Harrison. But then, of course, when it came down to Harrison, didn't completely rule it out. But the minute Geldof said, uh, we'll probably get you all singing Let It Be, then at that point, Harrison's cynical antenna kicks in and he thinks, well, why are we going to do a bloody Paul song then? You know? Yeah. And it's yeah. like, you know, old wounds are suddenly... No, no, no. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, it, yeah without John impossible uh you know uh, luckily you know that the, they, they did get together for anthology and, and do some things like that and and of course we got free as a bird uh, out of that with the three of them um but you know yeah i mean you think you know the you know let, let's face it the precursor to live aid was a concert from bangladesh 
and uh, you know that that kind of sets the template uh, for that. So yes, if yeah. John was around, you know, I, they certainly wouldn't have done it for the money. Um, you know, Led Zeppelin's a, another example who you know was thrown you know gazillions of dollars, uh, and they they didn't do it mostly because Robert wanted to go and do something other than. Um, so there is something to be said that maybe you know, one of them would have said, no, I'm off doing this, or, or they would have continued to, you know, to have their own lives or their inabilities like John did for, uh, for uh, between 75 and 80, um, you know, to raise uh, Sean in those very formative years. So, you know, like us with rock and roll archaeology, you know, you come at it from a fan's perspective. So let's get your introduction uh, to uh, the Beatles and how you became obsessed enough to write not one, but now two books on the Fab Four. Well, first of all, you always, I mean, as a teenager, you know, I mean, I should always point out to me, somebody said to me not so long ago, uh, Ken, did you ever see the Beatles live? And I was, I was so, <laughs> I was so, uh, I felt like saying, you know, how old do you think I am? I'm a child <laughs> right. of the 70s. I'm not a child of the 60s. Um, but you know, it kind of, I mean, I did like, oh, I mean, my music tastes are so varied, uh, but I always come back to the Beatles simply through the, 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 the strength of the songs, uh, the strength of the personalities, but also for me, it was about the story. It was about the story of these four guys and, and how their lives interlinked and intertwined uh, from that point. It's like, a, it's like four stars in a constellation. And how did these four stars ever align? The, that the four, or four of them came together to create this uh, unprecedented band, if you like. So I was always interested in I was always interested in the uh, in the story of the band as well as the music. But it always comes back to the songs, you know. And 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 such a breadth of material, such a body of work, with each album, each album being progressively better than the last album. Uh, and they just seem to grow as individuals and as a group. Uh, throughout that particular period, and and I think they did change the world. You know, I wasn't around; I can't far too young to remember. But you know, I've read 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 all my books and and, and looked at various essays and historical analysis, and and I'm in no doubt that uh, the Beatles changed the world for the better through their music at that time, uh, and I think we should all be grateful for that. Um, you know that uh, I don't think it will ever happen again where a band has such a, a cultural influence on the entire planet, not just young people, but, but, uh, but you know, older generations as well. They're the only band in history I know, which even now still have that cross-generational appeal to so many mm -hmm. people. And it's funny because, you know, if you listen to the songs, it's, it's a huge leap from something like, say, for example, a song like She Loves You, Strawberry Fields Forever, in oh, such God, a yeah. short... Mm -hmm. So I was always amazed at the growth of them as songwriters, as musicians, as individuals. And the story, even today, I think the story is incredible. You know, it reads like uh, it reads like a novel that you couldn't really make up. I agree. You know, when we started uh, uh, the original Rock and Roll Archaeology, uh, the first podcast, uh, one of my questions that I wanted to answer, which had been, you know, a bug my most of my life, was, okay, how do two of the greatest musical geniuses of the 20th century grow up less than one mile apart from each other? That 
that that there's something about genius. What does that mean? What how how does one accomplish that? And of course, you know what uh, what you come to find out is that you know the first is the emotional connection that John and Paul had to e with each other, the loss of their mothers uh, around the same time, um, and that created a bond uh, like no other. The timing itself of them just showing up. Uh, right at the moment, the willingness to put in the effort, the 10,000 hours in Hamburg or what have you. And then the luck of the draw of, uh, you know, getting hooked up with somebody like George Martin, you know, a, a headmaster who was perfect for them that helped them grow as individuals and as musicians. Yeah, I mean, it's a journey, Christian, which is pitted with synchronicity. Mm -hmm. Along the way, you know, all these magical events, all these touchstones that seem to happen through sheer sense, sheer power of feet. Um, and as you say, growing up so close to each other, uh, forming that bond because they lost their mothers so young. Um, definitely. And John Lennon, John, I mean, it's interesting as well. I think that, you know, the, the dynamic between them, John Lennon would not have chosen Paul McCartney as his creative partner unless he really believed he had something to offer. And I think that the, you know, that, that it was a partnership of equals in a sense. Yeah. Uh, and, it, and it was very important that way until of course, you know, things slightly, wheels slightly come off the wagon towards the end of that decade. But, uh, and that, that's what I was alluding to earlier on when I'm talking about it being a fantastic story in itself of two individuals who come together to form this partnership, this alliance, which changed everything. Yeah. Well, I also think, you know, uh, unlike a lot of bands, you know, these guys were workhorses. They, you know, they, the, the, the studio was their office. I mean, they literally, you know, come into work every day, you know, get a cup of tea and, you know, get to work, uh, you know, like any other, you know, blue collar, you know, or white collar job. Uh, they would just uh, come in and do that. They didn't get lost in, um, they never lost that that aspect of it. Uh, it. It just, you know, it was constantly punch in the clock, punch out, and they it treated it a little bit more like, you know, traditional songwriters, uh, you know, you'd find in the Brill Building who, you know, recognize that, you know, this is, it's a job. Yeah. And all the uh, accoutrements of stardom and fame and things like that are less important. And they constantly seem to understand that better than most. Yeah, in a sense, I mean, you meant you touched on the 10,000 hours in Hamburg. I don't think there was a harder working band in history than the Beatles. You must remember um, as well, you know, all these hours in Hamburg, all these hours finessing their sound, finessing their, their uh, creative approach to things. And then, and then when they actually make it or become a, a sort of proper recording band you're talking about what two albums a year yeah four singles a year yeah maybe once they become a bit better known then you've got the films i mean i look back in it now and i think how did they ever manage to cram all that creativity into such a short yeah schedule? seven seven years um, yeah yeah seven years I mean, and i said earlier on you know they were mushroom growing inside this hothouse yeah and um you know, you look nowadays and it's, it's quite the norm for bands to take five years to make an album. What it takes, that's what it takes. But these guys were relentless in their work ethic. And I think you can, there's another, always the, the, um, the comment from Brian Epstein when he said to, the, to Lennon McCartney, you've got a week off next week. And Lennon McCartney both said, that's fantastic. We can write an album. And the 
you know, <laughs> their attitude was that they had a uh, a week off from touring, and and that's that's also to be factored into the equation. Two albums a year, four singles a year. You know, once they hit America, world tours, UK tours, European tours. I mean, it, it, it's a world non, tours. Yeah, it's a non-stop treadmill, and and in between all that, yeah. you have to look to the next album, to the next single, get it written, get it recorded, and get it out. And it, and it, it was relentless. And I don't know how how they managed it. Yeah. You know, and, and also I don't know how their man the nervous systems held together in the face of all that pressure. And I think maybe having four guys in the band helped. The four right guys that that all seem to balance each other out. Uh, you know, I I I have said, and I will go uh, to my grave saying, without the addition of Ringo, there's no Beatles. Uh, that was that final piece that just created not only a balance of personality and in some um uh some wisdom uh that Ringo brings but you know this unique playing style which adds to this unique soundscape that they uh they are able to lean on uh throughout uh, the uh, the the years of recording together yeah well I'm a, I'm a huge Ringo fan actually you know he, he does get a bit of a bad rap now and again um, but, um, um, you know, it's like four sides of the same square, Christian. And if you remove one side, then it right. doesn't work. It doesn't, it doesn't work. work. No, it falls uh, apart. It yeah. doesn't work. Yeah. And, uh, yeah. and, and Ringo, yeah. I think they all had a, an important part to play throughout their careers. And, you know, you, you hear great drummers nowadays, like Taylor Hawkins or Bonham when he was alive and, and Bill Collins. Yeah. Neil, Neil Peart, uh, on and on. Yeah. And yeah. not one of them. Uh, have a bad word to say about Ringo Starr as a drummer, and they can't all be wrong. And I think Ringo's no. Ringo's drumming for the Beatles set an inventive template for so many others to follow. You only have to listen to the drumming on Tomorrow Never Knows for a kickoff. Uh, you hear something absolutely <laughs> unique. If you strip the drum track out of that song, it's not the same. We've got a band on this side of the pond called the Chemical no. Brothers, very dancing kind of a band. Yeah. And they said that Tomorrow Never Knows was the very first modern trance record because of that drum pattern. So it's very interesting. But no, I'm a huge I'm a huge Ringo fan. Well, without Ringo, it doesn't work. No, without Ringo, it doesn't work. Here's a quick word from our sponsors. We'll be back in a bit. Hello, Pantheon Podcast listeners. Christian Swain here to tell you more about my experience with Raycon earbuds. Our family now has three pairs of Raycon earbuds around the house. And my wife just grabbed a pair of the headphone pros to replace some headphones from a company that was double the price. And yes, she loves them. Now, if you haven't pulled the trigger on a pair of Raycons, or even if you have, but you're in the market for another pair because they're just that good, well, now is the time to check them out because they just launched their upgraded model of the best-selling everyday earbuds. With Raycon's upgraded everyday earbuds, now you also get active noise cancellation, ergonomic design, and multi-point connectivity that lets you pair with two devices at once. New quick charge function, three customizable sound styles plus awareness mode, available in a variety of vibrant new colors to complement any and all skin tones. I even have a pair of earbuds in a cool green color. I have tried just about every earbud known to humankind and these Raycons are fantastic. 
Seriously, if you've been wanting to check out Raycons, there truly is no better time. You're going to ask yourself why you didn't check them out sooner, and Raycon offers a 30-day happiness guarantee. So, what are you waiting for? Go to buyraycon.com slash pantheon today to get 20% off your Raycon order, plus free shipping. That's right, you'll get 20% off and free shipping at buyraycon.com slash pantheon. Buyraycon.com slash pantheon. And now back to the program. So uh, this is your second book on the Beatles. Your first being the Beatles in Scotland. So what did you discover in the first book? In the first book was, I mean, I never expected to actually write a book um, at all. In the first book, uh, just to set the scene very slightly, uh, John Lennon's cousin, Stanley Parks, lives or did live an hour from where I live in Glasgow. So I phoned him up. He's, he's a regular number in my phone book, and I phoned him up, and he said, come on down, and we went down for an afternoon. I took my son, who was only about six at the time, and and we had a long conversation about John, and, and he was such a lovely man, Christian. You know, he had an, an, a father, a bottomless pit of John's stories, and, mm. um, and you know, and, and he, he would show me all these letters, and I was like, it was like, you know, Holy script. <laughs> you know? Oh God, yeah. And um, oh yeah. And and I came away from his house thinking, well, could you do a book about all the connections to Scotland? Um, because John used to go up to the very north of Scotland for his holidays with Stanley as a child. And and so anyway, the whole thing began to take shape. Um and I was one of the things, one of the aims I set out to do was would it be possible? Because remember that the some quite a lot of people don't know that the very first tour as a band wasn't Hamburg or anywhere like that. It was in Scotland. Before Hamburg, you know, they did a very small tour of Scotland with a singer called Johnny Gentle, and and I oh that's as the backing, as the backing band. band, right? And I thought yeah. I set off with a with a, a name. Would it be possible to get an eyewitness account of every gig? that they ever played in Scotland, including these gigs where there were only like five people there or 10 people. <laughs> and I did very yeah. well, actually, out of something like 30 gigs, I got 28 eyewitnesses. So I thought that was an interesting an interesting concept. But, you know, there, there were a lot of these Scottish people had played crucial elements uh, along the road. There was a guy called Andy White who was a session drummer who played on the, one of the first versions of Love Me Do because George Martin didn't rate Ringo at that right. time. And so yep. he had a, an interesting story to tell. Donovan, the 70s, 1960s folk singer, yep. also comes from Glasgow. So he was very he went to India with them. Um, and again, it came down to context and eyewitness accounts. So slowly, we were able to put together a, a very large picture of their connections to Scotland. McCartney, of course, had a farm in Scotland. Yeah. Um, and and has got very strong links to Scotland. He's all, um, he was always very keen on uh, you know name checking a lot of Scottish places. So anyway, a, a, a picture emerged, and and very slowly a book emerged as well. And I was quite proud of it. I never expected to, you know, from that first meeting with John's cousin. Uh, to putting the whole thing together. So it was good. 
And it was a good maybe eight years later where I was so bored. <laughs> I thought, could I, is there another book? See, the problem is, Christian, there are so many books out there. There are so many. They are oh, they're, they're most written, written about uh, band in history. There's no two ways about it. So, that. you know, to try and bring something new to the table was going to be an enormous challenge. Um, but, you know, I did think about 1969 to get away from Scotland, to broaden the broaden the template a wee bit. And, um, and, it, and like everything That's else. This is... is this is a heavy lift. I mean, you know, why do you think it was necessary to write another book on the Beatles and especially about, you know, their last year as a band? Not not happy times. Um, and, you know, do you think you got to untying the Gordian knot? I don't know whether you ever tie the Gordian knot when it came to 1969. It was a, it was a very chaotic year and a very chaotic year for them. Uh, you know, that, um, you know the, the wheels were beginning to come off the wagon. They, they, they regrouped in the studio for Let It Be sessions very quickly after the White Album, and they weren't in a very good place personally or professionally. Uh, John, John Lennon was like a volcano trapped in ice because, mm. you know, a problem with drugs, um, and he was unhappy at his band situation. Um, and, and really, there, were, there was an awful lot of conflicts taking place in the background I mean, it sounds, it's, it, you mentioned yourself, it's a heavy lift. It's, it's a heavy period. But to try, I, I tried to break down the walls a wee bit so that you separated that heaviness so that you were able to shine some light and shade on the whole period. It's not all doom and gloom. I mean, in amongst all that period. Yeah. Too, too yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, yeah, yeah, the book is not all doom and gloom. I mean, you first of all, you break it up, uh, you know, over uh, the twelve months. Each chapter uh, is uh, is uh, is a month in the in the the life of the Beatles, uh, and uh, you know, it's not all uh, doom and gloom. Um, you know, there are plenty of things to 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 celebrate, uh, both uh, personally and uh, as a band. Yeah, I mean, out, out of all this chaos came some form of creation. And it always does. Friction can lead to great art. It's a pity that there was there were so many conflicts taking place in the background. It's incredible that they actually managed to do any work. I mean, they managed to keep up that ratio of two albums in a year. Although after mm. after Let It Be was such a an unpleasant experience, it's incredible that they're actually able to to get back in the studio to do one last album, one last love letter to the world in a sense. Um, so, you know, it always comes back to the, I mean, I, I talked to him and on about, I, I love the story of the band, even in its darkest moments. I still think from a journalist's point of view, it's a great story. And it is a great story. Mm -hmm. Even even the bad is good in a sense that it, mm -hmm. it, 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 it peels back the curtain on even just saying their names, John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, Ringo Starr. These are still iconic names. And to peel back the curtain on what was the most difficult point of their lives, I think is a is an interesting situation. But amid all the darkness, you still had the music. And at the end of the day, it's the music that comes through strongest and loudest. Yeah. Oh, without doubt. Uh, you know, you mentioned earlier, you know, we were talking about just the uh uh you know the the workmanlike 
uh, aspect of the band and, and how they took um, their job seriously. Uh, and, and then the Im immense amount of pressure and then the time crunch uh, that you put into it, lesser human beings would have just put out, you know, maybe a, a, a song or two and then a bunch of crap. <laughs> but that's not what happens here. You've got, you know, as you said, seven years of almost every album being superior to the one preceding it. Uh, it's just, uh, it's incredible. Any, uh, you know, whatever angle you look at it, it's really just an incredible period of time. Yeah, I mean, I, I don't know any band in history where each preceding album is followed by a, a much superior product. I mean, you can argue about whether the White Album is a better album than Sergeant Paper, and it's all very subjective. But it's a double album, you know. So. And, and all these all, all these discussions are very healthy. I'm a great believer in yeah. in, in and oh, that, yeah. that's one of the magical things about them is that you can have so many dis disparate points of view uh, and still come out on the same side together. Um, yeah. and, and I just think, you know, that uh, you'll never see the likes of this band again in terms of being influencers for subsequent generations as a result of their own output. And, and Abbey Road is, is, a, is a pretty good example of that. I mean, I always find it quite ironic at the moment, Christian, that the most downloaded Beatles song on Spotify is not, in fact, a Lennon McCartney song, but it's a George Harrison song. Here Comes the Sun. But I, yeah. There's a bit of an irony there because at that particular time, George Harrison was literally the dark horse coming up on the rails. But uh, it was a fantastic... I, 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 was, I was always fascinated by that time period, even though we're reaching the end of days, there was so much happening in, in all their lives. And we spoke about earlier on about the work ethic, but the work ethic held true right to the very end, which is absolutely incredible, I think. Oh, I, I completely agree. So do you think the first ring of the bell towards their demise was the sudden death of Brian Epstein? Well, there's no doubt it has a significant part to play, uh, as you say, ringing the division bell, in a sense. Um, you know, because Brian was the the guy who brought all these strands together, who was quite prepared to uh, deal with Paul's whims, John's whims, George's whims. Ringo didn't have any whims because he was quite happy to go with the floor. Um, and, and he seemed to be able to compartmentalize all these different issues and create some kind of unique hole. Uh, and when Brian died, all of a sudden the ship, the Titanic is rudderless and the rocks yeah. are not too far in the distance. Uh, and it's, you know, they did need somebody to be a businessman. I mean, they might have left Brian anyway. It's one of these open-ended questions of history, isn't it? You know, whether- Yeah, yeah, uh, yeah, because Brian, Brian as, as, as good of a personal manager he was, uh, business-wise, um, you know, I might give him a C. Yeah, there were some serious missteps. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah. So they always had that side of, uh, you know, the business side was always uh, in flux. And and I think, to your point, if things had gotten uh, serious um, uh, with, um, uh, with Brian uh, and really looking deep into the books, um yeah they may have decided they needed somebody they needed, else, a team. Uh, they needed somebody with a bit more yeah. clout yeah yeah that you know so that gets to the, the first point because you know uh, you know brian dies the year before um uh you, you point to apple Corps as the first major issue to create gunk in the gears uh that the three boys 
that three of the boys understood the need to keep financial issues quiet. Um, but I think uh, Lennon spoke to Disk and Echo, uh, where he laid bare the company's deep problems. Um, why is that? And um, you know, do you think uh, do you think Alan Klein saw that interview? No, I think that uh, I think Alan Klein is the demon king of the Beatles story, in a sense. Mm. Um, you know, the, the company that they ran, Apple, was in dire straits, hemorrhaging a lot of money, even though there was a lot of money coming in from the White Album, James Taylor, uh, Mary Hopkins, there was a lot of good product out there, but they were they were still spending more than they were bringing in. And there were all these terrible IOUs languishing in the Apple vaults. You know, Ringo owns the company X amount, George owns the company X amount, but Apple as a business entity was on in a, in a serious state of collapse in January 69. The, the interview you mentioned there, I think he may well have been a bit tongue-in-cheek, but John Lennon nevertheless did say in this interview that um, he was personally down to his last 50,000 50, pounds, probably not $50,000. Um, and at that point, that statement in Disc and Echo sent up a red flare. And that red flare carried its way all the way across from London to New York. And sitting in mm. New York is a, you know, a man wearing a, a sort of a polo neck shirt, pudgy <laughs> hands, uh, smoking a pipe. I mean, how, how, how unconventional, how, how conventional is that? Smoking a pipe in his, in his Manhattan office and he rubs his hands and the first thing he says when he sees that statement is, gotcha. And his name, of course, yeah. is Alan Klein, who was at that time yeah. the manager of the Rolling Stones, but whose clear ambition in life was that he was going to get the Beatles. And when he saw that announcement, he was convinced that he was the ideal person to make his own pitch to take over the running of Apple and by doing so, becoming the de facto manager of the Beatles. And at that point, once that chess piece is moved into play, then, you know, all sorts of movements take place around the board. Um, and I think that was a key moment in what became the slow dissolution of the band throughout that period. But I think the intervention of Alan Klein was a significant part, uh, was a significant element in the breakup of the Beatles to come. Yeah, yeah. Now, the walkout at Twickenham Studios by George, uh, you know, appears to be the first real concern someone, you know, was actually serious about leaving the band, wouldn't you say? Yeah, I would. Um, I think that's a very good point. Um, George was just fed up. I think he was just fed up. Yeah. He'd reached. Yeah, and now we, we know Ringo had threatened yeah. a few months earlier during the White Album. Uh, but, but uh, you know, convincing Ringo to come back w would always be easy. Yeah, I think, I mean, cynicism was hot-wired into George Harrison's DNA. You know, he didn't suffer fools gladly, and he certainly was struggling to accept Yoko Ono into the wider, wider Beatles family. Now, I've been very careful in the book not to apportion blame, because I don't think, when you look at this through the prism of history, it does anybody any good. There was a whole combination of circumstances involved here. But George was not a Yoko fan. He didn't like her sitting in in the sessions. Um, and he also felt that Lennon McCartney were 
dissing his songs. And and he was not a happy guy at that point. And um, and I think all the frustrations of working in the studio and and they weren't getting anywhere, you know, hour after hour, day after day, and this isn't really working very well. Uh, Peter Jackson may well take a different view on that, but we'll wait and see. Um, I, I was going to ask about, about that uh, since you brought it up. Uh, it, it seems to me a little bit of revisionist history. It absolutely, one hundred percent is. And no matter how you how this plays out, Christian, here's the bottom line, my friend: you cannot reheat a souffle. It can't be done. <laughs> if George Harrison walks out on the Beatles on a certain day in history in January '69 because he's fed up because he doesn't think this is working anymore. No amount of editing, by and by the way, I'm a huge Peter Jackson fan, but no amount of re-editing is going to change that history. It's not going to happen. Um, so although I'm very interested to see how, how it all works out, I agree 100%. It is a certain amount of revisionism. In, and, and I understand Ringo's already said, well, it looks great. Well, he would say that. And I understand Paul says it looks great. Well, I understand that he would say that. But at the yeah. end of the day, misery, the misery is that will be there for everybody to see. I'm sure there are much later moments, 400 hours of footage, there are bound to be some more lighthearted moments. But at the end, oh, yeah. at the end of the day, they were not in a very good place. And you can't change that. No, it ends in the dissolution of the band. Yeah. So <laughs> they didn't get it back together. They didn't work it all out. That, that doesn't mean to say it would be interesting. Uh, and I'm looking yeah. forward to it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We'll see. It is what it is. We'll see. Yeah, yeah, yeah. All right. We we, we mentioned Alan Klein, definitely uh, the Demon King uh, in the story. Um, but let's talk about Yoko. Um, you know, it's interesting that, you know, most observers over the years have pointed less at Yoko being uh, a catalyst of the breakout uh, the breakup. And and while you don't exactly point a finger uh, at her, it seems she's not exactly loved in the McNabb household. Well, not necessarily. It's not a, que it's not a question of love. <laughs> it's not a question of love. Um, I'm, I, just, I just didn't want to become so stereotypical as to single her out as an easy target for this. The thing that maybe I mean one of the one of the key key elements of of this project, Christian, was to try and apply some context to everything, to try and apply some perspective to it, to try and see things through the prism of fifty years and apply that new perspective to the events that happened then, and see whether in fact maybe maybe commentators, contemporaneous commentators, got it wrong. Um, and it's very easy. I mean, you must remember as well that, you know, she was uh, Japanese-American. There are hints of racism mm. attached to media commentary at the time, how she was sure. in, in newspapers and on television. She was ridiculed for being an avant-garde artist. I mean, her, her main claim to fame was a film showing with people's backsides, you know, and, mm. and she was perceived as this weird Japanese-American, very eccentric, who, oh, by the way, broke up Beetle John's marriage to this lovely girl from Liverpool and took him down this terrible rabbit hole. Um, but all that said, you cannot ignore the 
clear fact that Yoko's arrival on the scene alienated, to a degree, John, George and Ringo. The studio was always their sacrosanct area. You know, that was where they, they worked. And there's a certain amount of male chauvinism attached to it because they were North of England boys. It's a different era than it is now. And the studio was where they did their work. And then all of a sudden, there's Yoko sitting in George's amp, eating a biscuit. Take oh, worse than what? that, having a bed brought in <laughs> uh, into the studio uh, with a mic over the, the, the front. I, I, again, uh, you know, being in bands my whole life, I can't even imagine. And I would not have taken five minutes of it. Yeah. Uh, you know, um, I don't care how good or important uh, she is, um, you know, especially by being a, a, a lover to a particular member. Now that now you have allies now, now, now the, the dynamic shifts completely and utterly. Uh, and you just don't know how to respond or, or act to that. I just, you know, uh, I can understand, uh, uh, you know, I, uh, number one, there, I do not believe that Yoko had anything to do with breaking up John's marriage to Cynthia. That was inevitable. Uh, yeah. And if not her, some, somebody else. So th that, that there's, there's nothing there. Um, uh, whether Yoko is, uh, you know, uh, an, uh, uh, an avant-garde artist and the worth of her art, I think in some ways um, that case has been proven that um, uh, while it is uh, very, um, uh, you know, esoteric and, 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 and perhaps uh, out there, it still is art. It, it, it is meant to confront you. And I think that that's, that's a good thing. Um, but her interaction with the Beatles and, and I, and to be honest with you, I think I blame John more than I blame Yoko. She just went along with this and he, you know, uh, let's face it. He, he, you know, a lot of people say, Oh, so-and-so has daddy issues. I think it'd be fair to say that John had mommy issues and, you know, Yoko kind of filled some of that, um, that hole for him. And at that time, because he wasn't getting uh, the emotional support from the, the, the band that he considered his being, um, you know, he brought her in to, uh, to kind of uh, help uh, on that, um, but in a bad way. Yeah, I mean, it's very hard. I mean, I'm, I'm trying to be devil's advocate, but it's very hard to defend some of the conduct that took place at the time. And, and John Lennon had offered up a very passive resistance to what was happening in the studio. Um, and you mentioned earlier on about the bed being brought into Abbey Road. They did have a car crash in Scotland, not a million miles yeah. from here, actually. And um, and and then when they were recovering, you know, you can just imagine the scenario, the jaw-dropping scenario of, because they didn't know what kind of John was, I mean, was going to return, what kind of mood was he going to be in. Yeah. You know, he, he is like a volcano trapped in ice, partly as a result yeah. of heroin. But, heroin, yeah. yeah. But uh, you can just imagine the scene uh, at Abbey Road where they're trying to make this, this, uh, you know, an album of sort of a recalibration, if you like, and, and mm. in comes Yoko with a bed, with a microphone draped over the top, and I think that's the tipping point. I mean, it's it's bad enough that when you start to offer uh, unsolicited opinions on songs, I think that would that would cause a lot, of, a lot of bother. As I mentioned earlier, I think John, there was a passive resistance. He was clearly obsessed with Yoko. He was clearly obsessed. With yeah. Oh, yeah. Um, and, and it's not a stretch. 
to imagine that she had a resentment towards Paul McCartney in particular because, I mean, up to that point, John and Paul are the ones, you know, they're, they're, they're a real band of brothers and, and they have this very tight relationship. And all of a sudden, Yoko appears in the scene and he's completely infatuated by her, not just by her sexually, but intellectually. And, and mm-hmm. he loses himself in Yoko to a degree. So Paul's watching this from the sidelines and he's watching his relationship with A, his best friend, disappear over the horizon and also B, his creative collaborator disappearing over the horizon. So it's very hard to deal with. And somewhere in the mix is George Harrison wondering what is going on here. (laughs) So it all makes for this perfect storm of conflict. Um, But you, you cannot separate Yoko's involvement with John from the eventual breakup of the Beatles, it's impossible. I'm not saying it's a key factor, but it is one of many contributing factors to the overall. Yeah, uh, I mean, it's, to, to me, it's, uh, you, you know, I, I, the, the, the Alan Klein, and we'll, we'll talk more in, in depth on that, uh, you know, the business money side of things, creative differences, all of that is completely understandable. Uh, and that's a natural thing, and it happens to uh, most organizations uh, one way or another, um, you know, if they've been around for a, a period of time. Um, but adding a significant other, uh, into uh, the work environment, they are they are always going to look at you and say that you're the one, you're the best, you're the one that's carrying the load, you're the one that brought this all together, you're the, you know uh, because that that is their position in in a in a ne- normal natural relationship to begin with, and it just completely shifts uh, the uh, the dynamic. I just don't see how you can get out of this thing falling apart. Uh, I, I think if, if if you if Yoko wasn't in that particular position, uh, you know, her and John together and all the other stuff. But let's take the bed out of the studio. Uh, let's not have her there while they're working uh, and doing their thing. Um, you know, things might be different. But because that did happen, you know, it's I think a a, a bigger factor, um, maybe secondary to the business aspects. Yeah, there's there's an emotional element to all this, Christian, and 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 the problem, and and as as a musician yourself, you understand this in a band situation where you have a very dominant personality like John Lennon, and and you have a very dominant personality like Paul McCartney, and he's watching the all the bricks in the wall come tumbling down, and and Paul was always the Beatles cheerleader in chief, he was the guy Mm -hmm. who. You know, he would have kept it going in perpetuity if he could. Mm-hmm. And he's watching yeah. this facade come tumbling down. And he's got a choice. Does he front him up? Does he go to John and say, John, can we just leave Yoko outside? And you know what the reaction is going to be. John Lennon would have gone ballistic. Oh. <laughs> and at, at that point, at that point, yeah. the Beatles are over. Because Lennon would just have said, you know something, I'm out. Yeah, yeah. Fuck he would have walked yeah. away at that. Paul, Paul is very much trying to be the sort of Kofi Annan of the Beatles, or at that time, certainly the Henry Kissinger. The diplomat. Yeah, diplomat. He's trying to be yeah, the diplomat yeah. and hold all these different 
pieces together while walking through a landmine, a, a landmine infested field. And it's, I, I understand the difficulties there, you know. He doesn't want to, the only thing he's ever known is the Beatles and, 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 and he doesn't know how it's going to play out if, if he doesn't have that anymore. And subsequent events showed that, yeah, he went down the rabbit yeah, hole. Yeah, it, it really hurt him more than any of the rest. Yeah, the rest. yeah, yeah. So how does how do yeah. you deal with that? How do you deal with a guy like Lennon and say to him, the the, the, the dude, you can't bring your wife to rehearsal. Uh, that's crazy. <laughs> Interruptible truth. Hey, leave the broad at home, baby. That's <laughs> uh, just. That one gets me every time. I just, I, I, all I know is that I, 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 I wouldn't have lasted five minutes. Uh, I, I, the, the, the patience of Job in Paul, uh, let, let, let's say. So, so Alan Klein, oh, man, seems to be this incompetent person most responsible for speeding up the process. He seems Trumpian in ego and boast. The fuck you money uh, quotes. Um, you know, and the other thing is, he's the only one Yoko liked. I know. <laughs> John's response. It's like, oh man, this is not working out very well. I mean, he was this, you know, he was essentially a New York hustler. He was already the manager of the Stones. Most, a most unconventional rock and roll guy, you know, with his polo neck shirt and his pipe. Um, you know, he's, he's not the, he's not the, photo fit picture of a rock and roll manager in a sense you know and certainly not somebody who would be a natural fit for john lennon um but lennon lennon liked the underdog and uh, to try and again put everything in context for you christian i'm sure you know but for people who don't you know you've got alan Klein in one corner having rubbed his pudgy hands with glee at the prospect of being able to manage this band and in the other corner and this again speaks to the developing conflict between John Lennon and Paul McCartney. In the blue corner, we have <laughs> Yeah, I know where you we going. have John we have Paul McCartney with his prospective in-laws, John Eastman and Lee Eastman, who yeah. Eastman obviously being the ski on of a, a a very well known New York showbiz family, a family of entertainment lawyers. Um, and they couldn't have been more different from Alan Klein if they had lived in the sea of tranquility because <laughs> the, the the reek of park avenue privilege you know the you know, the 500 yeah. suits you know the you know the expensive shoes the expensive threads and 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 the, the good life the good life yeah. they're the yeah. complete antithesis of alan klein and lennon right away would see through that and and denounce it as fakery in its extreme and he would have wanted no part to play in that. Um, and but they were looking for a business manager. They were looking for somebody to straighten out their business financial issues. Yeah. Well, I, yeah, think I don't understand why the other three do not see through the 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 con of uh, of Alan Klein, and while the Eastmans, um, uh, you know, smack of privilege. The fact is, is that I, I just kind of feel like they would have been able to straighten things out. Maybe NEMS wouldn't have gone south. Northern Songs maybe didn't go south uh, and things like that. And, you know, the, the other three just 
I, it was almost like they just didn't want to do what Paul wanted to do. And, and I get I get from what you're saying. I mean, you know, uh, first the look and feel, uh, you know, a bunch of uh, ugly Americans, uh, you know, to begin with a, a privilege, uh, not exactly uh, conducive to, uh, you know, three scousers. Uh, and, um, you know, uh, and, and the fact that that, you know, they were going to end up being Paul's in-laws, which, you know, is almost as bad as the, the Yoko um, side of things with John. Yeah, it only added to the polarization between Lenin and McCartney. Uh, and, 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 and Lenin, Ringo and George were seduced by, um, by Alan Klein's hustle, in a sense. You know, yeah. the, you mentioned earlier the fuck you money attitude. Oh, you yeah. know, you know, whatever you want, I'll get, you know, I'll, 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 I'll uh, be able to get Nems songs, which is a publishing company. I'll be able to get it for nothing. They were, they were lured, they were sucked in by the bombast, by the false promises, by the empty rhetoric. And if somebody says to you, offers you, I'll, I'll get you a million dollars for nothing, then you think, well, that sounds good. And there's a certain, Business night. Yeah. yeah, but too too good to be true. Yeah. Good. <laughs> well, you know, it's the old story. If it's too good to be true, it probably is. <laughs> but there's a certain business naivety attached to them. I mean, you must remember that these were these were guys who were still in their twenties. I mean, Lennon and Lennon and Ringo were only twenty nine. They yeah. were still young guys, and and they've been through a lifetime of experiences. And everybody wants a piece of you, and it's very it's very hard to separate. Who's the good, the bad, and the ugly in all this? Um, but Paul McCartney was always the most socially class conscious of them all. And he, in the same way that Lenin would have been seduced by Alan Klein's working class rhetoric, McCartney was equally seduced by the classness of the Eastmans, in a sense. You know, he only had to go for dinner and he sees a, a Picasso here or a William de Kooning painting here. And, and he thinks, well, I quite like that. That works for me. Yeah. So again, you have the two principal, the two alpha males of the band in opposite corners, business-wise, person, personally, because Linda and Yoko were never going to be, you know, the best of friends either, and they're obviously going to they're obviously going to be in their respective man's corners. So yeah, of course. All of a sudden, two out of three, you've you've got them in different areas. The only one here where we might agree on, where we might find some common ground even now, is the music. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So let's take a little side trip. So during this time, uh, Ringo goes and makes a movie called The Magic Christian with Peter Sellers. And what's really interesting about that is uh, that the, you know, Peter uh, came from uh, this comedy troupe called The Goons, and the Beatles loved The Goons. Uh, and in some ways, you can kind of see that repartee of, of, of the goons in them in front of the press, especially in the in the early days. And then <laughs> in the movie is uh, uh, two members from Monty Python, uh, Graham Chapman and John Cleese, which is like the next iteration of the goons and the Beatles in, uh, in that. And I just it's it's to me. To see all of that come together in this little side thing was uh, was interesting. Yeah, it's, a, it's an interesting comedy crossover, isn't it? Um, mm -hmm. Where you know, as you said, you have the next iteration of the goons became Monty Python, and George Harrison, of course, was a huge champion of Monty Python. 
most expensive uh, home movie ever made exactly. uh, was Life of Brian. <laughs> yeah. uh, but uh, it, I mean, Peter Sellers and Ringo Starr did have a, an unusual relationship. Um, I think Ringo said at one time uh, there were so many different personalities in Peter Sellers, you really didn't know which one you would see from one day to the next. But uh, I did speak to a guy, you touched, touched on it briefly, called Bruce McBroom, who was, is an American photographer who took some of the last pictures right. of them as a band. And uh, yeah. and when he got the assignment, one of the things about the, the, the book, Christian, uh, was to try and speak to people who knew them to bring some kind of proper context to the whole scenario. And I spoke to Bruce McBroom, who was a lovely man, and um, and he told me a great story, which I don't mind sharing, even though it's in the book, because he was very nervous about getting this assignment uh, while Ringo was filming with Peter Sellers. So on this particular day, uh, it was arranged that he would meet all four Beatles, and he was extremely nervous about it because, you know, McCartney was very, you know, he had a certain cynicism attached to photographers. He thought they would rip them off, sell their pictures, etc. So if you can imagine the scenario where this guy is in front of all four Beatles, and they're trying to ascertain whether he's in fact trustworthy. And Peter Sellers stepped forward as an, as an honest broker, and because he knew Bruce McBroom, they had worked in films together. So, you know, he was a good ally. And um, and, and the quote was uh, when they were trying to, trying to suss out whether to trust this guy. And Peter Sellers said to them that, uh, gentlemen, I would trust Bruce with my wallet. And at that point, they all fell about because it's that kind of goon's humour. And that, oh, that yeah. was his entree into the band. Um, but no, the, the Monty Python element of uh, George Harrison sent uh, uh, Eric Idle and the BBC sent a, a telegram to the BBC on the very first night that Monty Python was aired because he couldn't believe it was so zany and he couldn't believe that this had never appeared on television before. Or, or that they got away or with it. Or that they got away with it. It's absolutely, <laughs> absolutely right. <laughs> uh, there were different times, you know. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It was, yeah. That's a that, well, that's a whole other rabbit hole. Believe me, you and I could go down. Uh, uh, but so let's let's get back to the business side of things, because you know, uh, it, it, it seems to me the the loss of Nems and and Northern songs, especially, is just uh, it's that's such a hole uh, to try to dig yourself out of um, when you begin to process the fact that you know your life's work now belongs to other people. Yes, that was a very difficult period. There are so many, there are so many, it's a bit like a Venn diagram, Christian. <laughs> Imagine yeah, a Venn yeah. diagram with all these various... Oh, that's, you should have included that at the, in the, the bibliography. Yeah, so the <laughs> um, and, and in the middle of this Venn diagram are the Beatles. Uh, Northern, yeah. Northern Songs, to again, you know, bring some context to it, was Lennon McCartney's own publishing company. Uh, and, and it was the last battleground on which they, uh, you know, they, they merged the forces, if you like, because Alan Klein, because there was a, a guy called Dick James who owned Northern Songs, and he wanted to sell the company on the stock exchange to the highest bidder. And this was one of the, the last moments where Lennon McCartney, in a business sense, it, it really was a rapprochement because it brought them back together and they decided to pull their personal and business resources to try and stave off. What they were really saying was, was seeing their songs 
been sold to the highest bidder, and they no longer would have had control of their songs. Their songs could have been used for anything, advertising, jingles, you name it. Um, and, and, and Alan Klein, and it even brought Klein and the Eastmans together for a short period to try and mobilise all their forces and, and, and form a common front, if you like, to try and keep these songs within the ownership of Lennon and McCartney. And of course, ultimately, it failed because the songs were bought by ATV, a, a, a British company, and, and Lennon and McCartney lost control of their own songs. And of course, the, the implications of that have cascaded down through the decades, ultimately to the likes of Sony, Michael Jackson, which is a whole different story. Uh, but it was it was a very important... I, mean, I, I talked earlier on about context. One of the things about doing the book, Christian, was this, that you would find that a decision taken in January or February of 1969, you might not find out what the impact or the implications of that decision was until maybe four or five months down the line. So when yeah. they start to yeah. try and fend off this very aggressive move to take to for somebody else to take their songs away from them, when they eventually they lost that fight in September 1969, the new that was that was Lou Grade. Was Lou right? Grade. The day that they found out that they had ultimately lost the battle, and importantly, Alan Klein had lost the battle. The very yeah. next day, there was a meeting uh, at Apple between. John Lennon, Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr, George Harrison wasn't at the meeting. Alan Klein was there. And it's 24 hours, or maybe 48 hours since then, and Lennon was seething because the white flag had been hoisted. They had, they, you know, ATV had now 51% control. So they didn't own their own songs. They had no control over what happened to them. And Lennon was seething, and he went into this meeting at which they were supposed to sign a new record deal for capital. And at that meeting... The royalties, yeah. And at that meeting is the the one where he blurts out, I want a divorce. Yeah, September 12th. September 12th. Now, history has shown us that, you know, that Lennon just blurted out. But if you put it into the context of him having lost control of his own songs, I think it adds a certain poignancy to the whole thing. That you know that was the that was the last that was the final straw for John Lennon in the Beatles. He might have decided to give it another, give the give the carousel another push, but when he lost control of Northern Songs, the game was up. And I think that was a critical moment where he decided to think we're at the end game here. And and I think that was on his mind. People just think he he had had enough because Paul kept on saying, "No, I think we need to get back to touring." I think we need to get back to basics. I think we need to get back to a rock and roll band. And Lennon just kept on saying, no, no, no. And at some point, but I do think that it's been buried under the sediment of time that one of the reasons why John Lennon erupted the way he did was because he was so angry. He was so angry at losing his songs. Well, he should have been angry at himself because the reality is, is that, you know, this all lands at the feet of Alan Klein. It does. Uh, you know, he boasted and made the promise that he was going to get NIMS for nothing. This would not be a problem uh, getting, uh, you know, the ownership of Northern songs. And he failed in those two 
um, uh, huge, huge pieces of business. Now he was able to um, negotiate, uh, you know, new royalty rates uh, with Sir John Lockwood uh, with EMI Capital, um, and I think that kind of saved his ass, wouldn't you say? It definitely did. You know, I mean, even even after even after the debacle over Northern Songs, the debacle over names, the debacle over Apple. And it's astonishing, really, that even then, the, the scales never seemed to fall from Lenin's eyes, and he couldn't see Alan Klein for what he was. Uh, he was, you know, a guy big in talk, but small in, small in delivering. What in action, did, yeah. Uh, yeah. All in actions. Um, but as I say, it's, it's amazing. Reminds me, it reminds me of somebody... Uh, in the public eye today, let's see who might that be. Oh, never mind. <laughs> well, it will be interesting to see if the scales fall from the eyes of the American public over the next ninety days, <laughs> or, or we all end up like John Lennon. Great. Uh, <laughs> the, uh, another side uh, thing that occurs um, is the competing weddings. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? <laughs> it's just, and, and you know, I mean, when you're that famous, um, uh, you know, uh, you're you're you know, you're going to be splashed across every newspaper in the world when you you get married, and so I, I think you know, um, uh, um, uh, Paul marries first, and that pisses off John. Yeah, I mean, you you have to ask yourself a question and wonder what's the big issue here. You know, I mean, John Lennon liked to portray himself as this rock and roll maverick been very unconventional and yet he does the most conventional thing you can imagine which is to get married um but it was a great i mean you know that yeah he was the first right yeah <laughs> and and it's like there's this sibling rivalry that even extended into their private lives between lennon and mccartney um and it is an odd juxtaposition that they got married within a week of each other um to american japanese american wives um and I did speak to the photographer who was on board the plane uh, when Lennon got married, and and he yeah in Gibraltar yeah right, right. And, and he offered up some fascinating stories on uh, what it was like to actually be in the plane. He didn't know anything about it. It was a very cloak and dagger uh, situation where he got a phone call the day before from Apple um, to say, "Will you be at such and such a place at such and such a time?" I think it was Peter Brown made the call at Apple. Mm. The title, mm. you know, CEO until such things calm down, and and it was only when he was standing on the tarmac at Gibraltar Airport that he realised the reason for him for him being there, and the reason why it was so cloak and dagger. And just again, it seems so bizarre when you look back at it because they thought that the white the, the phones were being tapped by you know British, you know surveillance, uh, British espionage services. Because the Beatles were regarded as, uh, you know, so anti-establishment, seems so bizarre now when you look back on it. Uh, it. It does, but it's not out of the realm of possibilities. Uh, knowing what we know now of, uh, you know, certainly the American FBI uh, and uh, their treatment of, of John uh, trying to become a citizen. Yeah, well, the story is the story seems to be that. Uh, Hoover and Nixon opened a book on John Lennon as early as January 69, not, no, yeah. not, not long after his election victory. Um, and obviously Lennon's uh, anti-war stance, anti-Vietnam stance, as it materialised throughout 1969, 
brought him ever closer to Nixon's attention, um, which is good. <laughs> but it did cause him a lot of heartache down the line. Yeah, it, it certainly did uh, to to stay in uh, in the United States uh, when they uh, they moved to New York. So uh, you know um, they do get back together uh, to make one last album. Uh, I, I don't think that initially the the idea was to make one last album. It's just let's try to get the band back together. Let's try to get back to the way things were. They brought George Martin back, who had been left out of the Let It Be uh, sessions, uh, to work on this thing that ends up becoming uh, Abbey Road. Um, but what's interesting, and I, you know, I I never quite uh, picked up on this and I got this from your book and that is while um, uh, both came with some strong musical uh, choices certainly on the Lennon side of things there is a lyrical failure uh, and and you know I, I, you kind of expose that and now I went back listening to uh, some of the songs you know Sun King's a perfect example um, where yeah you're right there's just not a lot there there is there Well, I think, uh, and it's perhaps slightly controversial, but I do think that John's heroin problem in 1969 hampered his lyrical creativity to a degree. I completely agree. I mean, yeah. I mean, there's a couple of songs on on Let It Be which are good. Uh, Don't Let Me Down is obviously a great track. Across mm. the Universe is a leftover from the previous year. Uh, but there are some still very high moments Come Together is probably even now, even after all these years, one of the most popular tracks on uh, FM radio even now. But when you yeah. look at the lyrics, you think, what is he talking about? By the way, maybe he doesn't, it doesn't have to be J.R.R. Tolkien. It, you know, it just, and he also, if you have a song like uh, I Want Her, She's So Heavy, there are only something like 12 words in it. In the whole thing, right? It's right. And it's an eight-minute long song. song. <laughs> Still agree. Yeah, oh, yeah. Um, and I just wonder, without any great evidence, uh, so there's a certain amount of supposition, but I just wonder whether heroin stymied his lyrical creativity slightly, because Paul McCartney was coming to the table with some very strong material. Let It Be is a very good example, a song which even now has probably become an anthem to the world. Um, and some of Paul's material on Abbey Road, I always think You Never Give Me Your Money is a great track. Oh, amazing track, it's, yeah. It's so, and, and, and of course, we all know who that's directed Very at. biting. <laughs> yeah. yeah, one of the world's first diss songs. We, are you listening, Alan? Um, yeah. And, uh, and, and, and he has brought some great... The medley in itself is really a Paul creation. But again, John's, John's moments in the medley, like me and Mr. Mustard, once again, you're looking at it and thinking, it's not. But it, but having said that, Christian, it does fit into the the concept of the album, the concept of the medley, and seamlessly. So you don't need to yeah. analyse it too much. I mean, Lennon, Lennon himself explained, I want you, she's so heavy, along the following lines, that if I see somebody drowning, I don't necessarily stand at the quayside and say, excuse me, you ought to be in... A bit of trouble here. Is there anything I can do to help? Just say, <laughs> you know, you just run in and do what you have to do. So yeah. he understood the context of the song. Uh, from my own point of view, I'm just thinking it doesn't sound great, but Come Together remains a great song and it retains a very special place in a lot of 
Beatles fans affections. Yeah, and it's been covered uh, many times, and uh, uh, rightfully so. Uh, you know, it's uh, uh, it is interesting though that uh, you know you can really kind of see the heroin problem uh, most overtly uh, in 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 the fact that the the lyrics are so sparse uh, and um, and and not up to to par of what uh, what he had accomplished uh, in the past. Um, and you know, I think you're right. You can just you know um, slap it right on uh, the addiction problem. When you look at some of the pictures that were taken at Lennon's house, the, the very last pictures of them taken together as a band, much as it pains me, because I'm a, I'm a, I mean, John was a, John was the undoubted the heart of the band. You know, he was the driving mm. spirit of the band. And without him, there is no band. But and it, and, it, and it's painful to watch, uh, to look at some of these images from August, where he's clearly ill. He's not well at all, um, and he was able to pull himself back from the brink to do some really good stuff and and to try and you know get his act together in a sense. But the pictures that are taken of him with a very full beard and he, his eyes are you know pinpricks. And he just looks, he just, I mean, they all look miserable. <laughs> they all look miserable um, because it, it's not just the, it's not just Abbey Road, it's the end of the road. Um, and they, they, look, they look fed up and you have to think, give them a break. But John, I don't think he looks particularly well. No, no. You know, but, you know, at the same time, you know, there are moments of, of joy. And, uh, you know, uh, one of those, uh, which is, you know, codified uh, in, uh, in history, uh, of which I know uh, a, a little bit about, uh, is uh, the recording of the Ballad of John and Yoko about John and Yoko's marriage, of which Paul, you know, John calls up uh, Paul one day and says, hey, I got this idea for a song. Uh, you mind coming on down and, and you know, working on it? Uh, and the other two guys are gone, uh, off doing their own thing. And Paul, of course, yeah, I'll be right down. And uh, they spend, uh, you know, eight to 10 hours working on this thing, playing the, the two of them playing all the instruments. And um, the people around them uh, have said that this was, you know, a, just a normal, joyous Beatles session between two guys who were supposedly at each other's throats. Yeah, joyous is the word I would have used, Christian. Actually, you know, for, by all accounts, the two of them, you know, ran through this maybe a dozen takes or so, um, and and you know, it's quite and it, and it does sound like the Beatles, even though Paul handled the drums and. You know, and and uh, and some of the guitar work. Um, I think what it does say about them is that even at the height of all their polarization, even at the height of their professional and personal difficulties, they were able to set that aside. And John yeah. comes calling to Paul, and and this this speaks perhaps to the enduring bond that they had, and I think they always had, uh, despite you know all the sniping from the sidelines. All the sniping from the grassy knoll. I think that um, you know they they still had this this attachment to this each other, this bond, an unbreakable bond. Um, and it's interesting as well. I think that one one thing in John Lennon's defence is John Lennon had it seems to me had an incredible ability, Christian, to compartmentalise his moods. You know, one day he would be shouting 
all sorts of insults at McCartney over a business disagreement and screaming at him and screaming at his wife. Can you imagine how that must have gone down? And then the very next day, the two of them are sitting nose to nose in a studio, hammering out the chords to the ballad of Johnny Yoko, as if nothing has happened, as if everything's fine, mm. as if detente actually does exist. Mm. So, you know, I do think it speaks to that, the ties that bind. Um, and I don't think these ties were ever really broken. Um, you know, I always used to think of the Beatles like this, Christian, that despite all the things they went through, that, that people like you and I and the millions of fans all around the world wanted them at the end to end up the way they began, which is four guys who were who really loved each other, who were really tight. Uh, and unfortunately, fate just got in the way of that. But I, 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 yeah. I, genuinely, I genuinely believed that right up until December the 8th, 1980, they genuinely loved each other. Um, and I don't think that would ever have changed. I don't think so. No, I, I, you know, in the end, and and that's that takes me back to the 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 beginning question of that, you know, would they have ever gotten uh, back together? And you know, again, I just think that had Lennon uh, lived, um, oh, you know, something would have would have put them. It, it would have been a cause. And and to me, I keep looking at Live Aid and say, you know, geez, that that eighty five, it's a perfect moment for them. Uh, you know, Geldof and his cause. Um, he was able to convince so many others to to jump on this train. Uh, there's no reason why he wouldn't have been able to figure out a, a way to make that happen. But, you know, again, that's conjecture. Uh, you know, we'll, we'll never know. But I got to say that we have a mutual friend uh, who was there uh, at uh, the recording of uh, The Ballad of John and Yoko. Uh, and you quote in your book, and that's John Kosh. Uh, Kosh oh, is yes, a host yeah. uh, on, on, on our network. Uh, I've heard the stories uh, from, from, from Kosh on, uh, you know, the, uh, the end of uh, that last year because he was there uh, all the time. And then, you know, he was really a John guy. He was brought in by John uh, and uh, worked on uh, the um, – uh, wars over campaign uh, and things like that. Um, but he was also uh, directly responsible in putting together uh, the cover of the his first album uh, cover of which he's done over 2,500 nowadays. But, it, you know, imagine that your first album cover is Abbey Road, uh, you know, under under his art direction uh, uh, as um, uh, as the guy putting it together. And, and it's an interesting story how that all comes about and uh you know uh, again there's 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 all kinds of issues going on back and forth and uh you know kosh makes the decision of not putting the band's name on the the cover of this new album that they're putting out yeah i mean you know again kosh was one of these guys uh, i i took the view that if i can get in touch with him then he might be there are always new stories there christian if you can tease them out and some people have told mm. these stories so often they forget that they've only told them to a select amount of people. It's not always in the public domain. And the story of, of the fact that the word the Beatles does not appear anywhere on the cover of Abbey Road is great. And, and the story itself is great because he was a young guy. Uh, he was very much a John guy. But when Sir Joseph Lockwood, who was the chairman of EMI, found out that the word Beatles was not going to appear anywhere on, on the album cover, he went absolutely ballistic. Kosh took the view, whether it be controversial or whether it just be very maverick, um, he took the view that all you have to do 
is look at the cover of this album. And if you don't know who these guys are, then welcome to Neptune. (laughs) If you don't know who they are, then you're living in somewhere else. So he took the view that they didn't need... And of course, when Sir Joseph Lockwood found out, he thought that would be commercially disastrous. And uh, at three o'clock in the morning, phoned Kosh, got him out of his bed, and in very un upper class tones, shall we say, uh, (laughs) rated them for this omission, which he thought would cost EMI uh, millions of pounds and and not help to put some wind in the album sales. But of course, you look at it now and anybody who doesn't know who these guys are, as I say, are coming from another planet. What colour is the sky in your world? Right, right, right. So uh, let it be. Um, They are able to kind of resurrect this. Um, and now they're, you know, they're competing versions out there. Let it be naked, uh, which is really, you know, credited to, to Glenn Johns uh, and how he put it together or versus Phil Spector. Do you have a preference? I quite like the Glenn Johns mix. Um, yeah. I quite like the Glenn Johns mix. Uh, it, it's the Beatles unplugged in a sense uh, long before MTV arrived in the scene. And, uh, and it does have a starkness, which is quite appealing. Um, and I can understand that. You know, there's this this uh, division of opinion between, you know, the, the, the long and winding road and the orchestration that's been applied to it. Does it make it yeah. a bit saccharine, a bit sickly sweet, perhaps? But I remember being young, Christian, and, and the only version I ever heard before I really got into the band... Was the Spectre was version, the Spectre yeah. Version. So you kind of become very accustomed to it. Um, mm. And I don't hate it. I can understand why McCartney hated it because it was a decision taken against his wishes and out with his control. And being a control freak, understandably, then I get why that would really piss him off. Um, mm. So I do quite like the Glenn Johns mixes. But Spectre deserves some credit for you know, for bringing back the likes of Across the Universe from the Dead. Um, Let It Be itself is a great track. The album version... With, I think the album version has a Harrison lead, lead guitar, which is much more prominent um, as opposed to the single version. Um, so, you know, it's one of those moments that, you know, people will argue over until time ends. Uh, <laughs> whether you prefer yeah. the Glenn Johns mixes. Um, what will be interesting uh, will be whether we get yet another version of it. Uh, to commemorate the uh, with with the Peter no. Jackson movie, right? <laughs> with uh, yeah, of course. Well, uh, I'm sure Giles uh, will want to put his fingers uh, on on that. Uh, well, his involvement, his involvement has been brilliant. It has to be said, his involvement. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, what he is, room. what he has accomplished. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. There's, there's no two ways uh, about that. That, uh, that, uh, that Giles has done a, a good job of, uh, of resurrecting um, these sounds and making them, making them a little bit more modern. Yeah. Uh, and able to uh, probably have an even longer life than, uh, than they had. So, so we said that you know September twelfth, nineteen sixty nine, is when you know the first Beatle, John, uh, you know, makes a, a, a real declaration of independence that sticks. But Klein pleads for him to keep quiet. Uh, and he does and he doesn't. Um, that was another thing I, I, I didn't know, that he had uh, spoken to a, a journalist and told him, uh, I think uh, during the Toronto 
um, uh, uh, Plastic Ono uh, band, the first uh, um, uh, uh, show of that uh, uh, of that act, um, that no, the Beatles were over. Uh, but you can't say anything. But John expected him to say something. Yes, it was actually in uh, in Canada uh, towards the end of the year where Lennon was hanging out with. Um, Ronnie Hawkins, who was one of the guys. Oh, that's right. No, this was the second. Yeah. This was uh, this was the second trip back uh, yeah. when they, Pierre Trudeau and Ronnie Hawkins in, in, in Canada, and um, and it's near. It's not about December or so. And the guy that you mentioned was called Ray Connolly, who was a London Evening Standard journalist who had a foot in both camps. He was very friendly with both Lennon and McCartney, and 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 walked that high wire between the two of them. You know, and very careful not to try and hack off one or the other. And, you, and as a journalist, I can understand that. Uh, but anyway, <laughs> Ray Connolly came out to Canada to see Lennon. And he's actually met with Lennon when he turns up at this farmstead. And Lennon was, had just come out of the shower. His hair's dripping. And, and he couldn't wait to tell him. He says, come on, come on, come on. I've just something to tell you. So he pulls him in and he says to him, before he even says, hello, how are you? And he says, I've left the Beatles. Now this happens a good maybe two months after after he said to McCartney, because the thing was with the, the September announcement, Christian is nobody knows whether John's serious or not. You know, he can right. change his mind next week. He's that he's that changeable. Yeah, we, we'd you know? seen Ringo leave and come back. We'd seen George no, come, come leave and come back. So nobody's quite sure whether this time maybe he could change his mind and say, "Guys, I was only joking." But anyway, when yeah. the, when Ray Connolly turns up to see him in Canada, the first thing Lennon says to him is, I've left the Beatles. And Ray Connolly, of course, sharpening his pen, thinks he's sitting on the showbiz scoop the biggest of scoop the century. Of the world. But then, of course, <laughs> yeah. Lennon adds the PS, but you can't tell anybody. Well, you can't tell, you can, you can tell them, but not until I'm ready. So they then do a very, you know, a sort of generalised interview about life with the Lennons, this, that. But he doesn't mention, you know, John Lennon kept to his vow of Beatle Omerta, which is not to tell anyone, to keep it quiet. And so Ray Connolly sat in the story, didn't tell anybody, not a soul. And then five months down the line, Paul releases his first solo album. And inside the solo album is a Q&A. And the Q&A makes it very clear that he has left the Beatles and it's all over. So Ray Connolly, Ray Connolly is then left fuming because he didn't uh, he didn't re reveal the story and uh, and Lennon of course is feeling a bit sorry for himself because Paul's got all this headlines all over the world although it didn't cast him in a very good light because he no. he was then he becomes the villain, the villain. in the story <laughs> and at the moment course, right and of course Lennon says to Ray Connolly why didn't you write it and Ray Connolly said well you told me not to and he said, Connell, you're the bloody journalist. You're the journalist. Why didn't you write it? So, you know, I think Ray Connolly may, with hindsight, have thought he was being set up by Lennon because he th Lennon probably thought he wouldn't be able to resist it. But he did resist it. And to his eternal regret, he missed out on the, as you say, the showbiz scoop of his career and of the century. Right. Right. Yeah. So Paul in April 1970 does a self interview. Uh, and that now is considered the the official announcement, um, though I think some still held out hope 
uh, throughout 1970, wouldn't you say? Yeah, there was always the possibility that they could get back together again. You know, I mean, people always held out this olive branch that the somewhere along the line detente would kick in. But I think the longer the, the longer things were left, then you mentioned earlier about the concept for Bangladesh. Uh, George Harrison is first out the gate with all things must pass. All things must pass, yeah. Uh, when, uh, strong effort. <laughs> strong, strong effort. And then you've got Lennon doing Plastic Ono Band. McCartney's already done McCartney. Um, so all of a sudden... Not exactly a strong effort. <laughs> not exactly. But... Uh... <laughs> Although but think, uh, but we, we we know he is going through some very very difficult. He, he, I think he emotionally suffered the most of. Uh, he did, you know. I think it was a terrible, uh, inflicted a terrible blow on his personal life. Um, you know, he's spoken before about, you know, he, he drank far too much alcohol. It's not really like him. He kind of lost control of himself, and sank into mm. a depression. Um, and eventually, of course, he had to take the decision. He was the one who took the decision that he had, in order for him to break away from the Beatles, he had no option but to sue the Beatles in order yeah. for the company to be rescinded. Uh, yeah, I, I, I say that the, the, the end of the Beatles is December 31st, 1970, uh, when yeah. uh, the lawsuit uh, is filed uh, officially, when uh, when Paul sues the other three Beatles and, and their management. Um, uh, wouldn't you say that that that's uh, that would, is I the mean, official that, 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 that's date? The that's the line in the sand, Christian, where there's no return, mm -hmm. you know. Uh, and there's an awful lot of bad feeling. It took a long time for the wounds to heal. For the the you know, it was toxic, and these wounds were septic, and 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 of course they start to diss each other in songs. You know, McCartney yeah. has a in the press. Um, and, yeah. Lennon doesn't really do his subtlety, so he just. Gets down to the next city with how do you sleep? Um, and it's unfortunate that the the war between them was played out so publicly because it didn't do either of them any favors. Um, and for and of course it meant that fans then were you're either in John's camp or you're in Paul's yeah. camp, and it just added to the whole polarization. And it's a pity that the band that epitomized all you need is love couldn't find that same love when they perhaps needed it most. And and by the time months and years had passed, and even after Lennon and Harrison and Ringo did eventually wise up, and the scales did fall from their eyes, and they got shot of Alan Klein. But by that time, Paul McCartney's on a roll. His career's on a roll, he's banned in the run. And all of a sudden, you know, he might not. But I think, I think you mentioned it earlier, Paul would have gone back in a heartbeat. If, if, yeah. If John, if John said, "Let's let's put it back together," uh, yeah, Paul would have uh, would have figured out a way to make that happen. And and you know, in in, in today's world, uh, it it's funny. I've had many discussions with uh, you know with uh, legends uh, uh, in their position, where you know in the back in the day, you you either were a band or you weren't a band. You know, now bands can go on hiatus; they can go and do solo projects. And then come back together after a few years and everything's good. And you just pick back up, uh, which, you know, in a weird sort of way, just seems normal. And the idea that, you know, an artistic endeavor should just end 
um, you know, it just goes to show just that, that, you know, the commercialization of the, the, the corporatization side of things, the business side of things just takes over so much that you, you inevitably just take on the language and the, uh, expectations of a business as opposed to, you know, four guys getting together, making music. Yeah. I mean, I always take the view that, you know, that if, if I look at, if I look at the cover of Abbey Road, Christian, I see a band frozen in rock and roll amber. You know, it's, it's yeah. like the famous, it's like the famous Armistice poem, Age Shall Not Weary Them. I, I see these four guys walking off that zebra, walking off that zebra crossing and into history. Uh, and, mm -hmm. and in a sense, I'm quite, from a personal point of view, I'm quite glad about that because there was no... Oh, aesthetically, it makes a perfect yeah. bookend, yes. And, and there's no law of diminishing returns whereby you might get back in five years' time, you might get back in 10 years' time, and you might make an album. And of course, you know, you hold it up against, you hold it up to the light against a white album. And, well, it's not quite as good. It's better than uh, it's better than Beatles for Sale, but it's not really the white album, is it? And and all of a sudden, your reputation and your legacy and what came before is shredded. And there's no way to get it back because all of a sudden you're looking at a law of diminishing returns. If you look at a band like The Stones, who I love, um, yeah. You know, over the years, they yeah. Have, after seven, after seventy-eight, uh, it's yeah, a really a classic exactly. uh, in there, right? After it becomes difficult, yeah. and and all of a sudden, yeah. they have now become, even allowing for the fact that they do make new product, and they seem quite happy. Who am I? But oh, they, I just saw them last year. Believe me, they seem they're, quite happy. They're just as great, and, and as far as a live band, they're just as good as they. So ever. you know what you just said. Uh, but but as far as putting music together or, or writing, composing, that uh, yeah, what you yeah, just yeah. said uh, counters my argument. But where you become your own tribute band, but I've seen the Stones, yeah. and and they are very good. But I would have hated that for the Beatles, whereby they become their own tribute band. A band like the Eagles, for example, even allowing for Glenn Frey having died. Still tour, they've still got Donnie, and they sound just fine. But they don't. There's nothing new. Their concerts are based purely on nostalgia. Fleetwood Mac yeah. come into the same category, yeah. and incidentally, that's okay. There's no law that says you can't do that. But I wouldn't have yeah. wanted that for the Beatles. I would have wanted to be able to look at Abbey Road and say that was the moment where it was Good Night Vienna, and and everything, the body of work upholds well and they retained their integrity and their credibility as a band. So, you know, as we said, you know, um, December 31st, 1970, uh, we both agree, is the end of the Beatles officially. Um, but, you know, a lot of people point to Altamont as the end of the 60s, and I completely disagree. I think that's too easy uh, to point to. Uh, I, I personally think yeah. that the end of the yeah. 60s comes with the end of the Beatles. Uh, that really, they are the cultural touchstone of the decade, um, if not the late 20th century, and uh, maybe even the entire century. And, uh, you know, they end on December 31st, 1970. So wouldn't that make the better, you know, if, if, if you had to point a finger, which is difficult for archaeologists and historians, but if you were to point a finger at a particular moment, like some have done with Altamont, I think a better marker is December 31st, 1970, wouldn't you say? December, yes, absolutely. That, that's the moment in the sand where there's no real, um, there's no real return. 
And once you once you start bringing in lawyers, and I mean, and, and I mean uh, the sixties, I mean court, not the band, it raises the, the, the whole 60s. game to a new and rancorous level. But I mean, I mean the nineteen sixties, not the band, but the entire decade comes to a close on December thirty first. You know, as opposed to. December 31st, 1969. Yeah, you think the 60s and into a December new decade. 31st, I think the 60s yeah. and this, because that is the end of the Beatles. And the Beatles are really what the 60s, you know, uh, are, are really about. This, you know, this, the, they were the, the, the soundtrack of the decade. They pushed the envelope. They commented on the times. The times uh, affected them. Um, uh, you know, they're just, they are in, in, encased in that counterculture more so than anything or anybody. And it just seems to me that if you want to point a finger at a particular moment, it's not Altamont. It is them. And it has to be their demise, which uh, occurs exactly one year later on December 31st, 1970. Yeah. And I, I asked that because uh, near the end of the, your book, you suggest the 1960s provided a small window when a chunk of humanity briefly realizes its moral potential and flirted with a collective belief that the love you take is equal to the love you make. Well, I just, I just, I, I found that uh, McCartney's rhyming couplet. I mean, it's such, it's such a great line, and it just seemed to sum up everything about them. You know, especially when it came to young people. That they 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 were able to marshal a movement. They were able to make people make people feel better about themselves through the music. I mean, somebody said to me, "Why do you like the Beatles so much?" I mean, I, I love all my bands. I mean, Touch and Zeppelin, the Stones, all the classic rock bands. But I, I can easily go from Mozart to Metallica or from Schubert to Sinatra, no problem. And at the end of the day, it's all about the music. But the songs make me happy. The songs make me happy. And and and. You'll never see a period in history again, I think, where so many young people were so motivated to be a movement for change. Unfortunately, change is a, you know, a constant river. It's never, it's never one place at one time, you know, and it would be nice if it was permanent, but it never is. But for that particular yeah. period, and it's a pity because you did mention Altamont, and I think Altamont did change things in terms of public mood, uh, which is a great shame. But for a short period in history, I think the Beatles affected some kind of social and cultural change, which was good for the planet. Um, and you won't see that again. And that's too bad. Um, so, you know, what was it about uh, them, in your opinion, that we all still obsess about just four regular blokes from northern, from a northern English town, playing American style music. I don't know. I mean, it's the ultimate rock and roll riddle wrapped inside a conundrum. You know, why fifty years are we are guys like you and I? I mean, rock and roll is a young man's game, but somehow or other, the songs have transcended the period. The songs seem to have taken on a life of their own, um, and it is all about the songs. But enmeshed in the middle of all this are, are the personalities of John Lennon, Paul McCartney, George Harrison, and Ringo Starr. And they seem to have taken on a certain deification, especially in America. 
I mean, I speak to a lot of people in America who still regard the Beatles even 50, nearly 60 years on, 55 years on, as some kind of uh, cultural divinities. The, the, the regard that they're held in is that high. And I don't, they've certainly become the most influential band because they have, all, all, they have influenced so many bands subsequent to them. So I think that does speak to the quality that they have. But it is, I mean, you know, I mean, why do we, why do we still talk about Mozart so many years after the, after the, the event? Why do we still talk about Beethoven? You know, will we still be talking, it's a quarter of a century now, half a century, will we still be talking about the Beatles in another 50 years' time when you and I are pushing up daisies? The answer to that is probably yes, because there's always something new you can find. And that's why I quite like doing the book. I quite like the idea that, for me, if I found something new that brought something new to the table, like the, the Abbey Road cover and seeing the three painter and decorators right down in the corner and blacking right. one of them down, and he'd never spoken before. So there are always stories there that can be teased out. But the Beatles seem to have certainly taken on a sort of phenomenon of their own, and I don't see it changing. I think there will always be something new. But at the end of the day, it's all about the music. It's all about the songs. Yeah. I think it was a very, very special time. Um, uh, uh, that is uh, something I harp on uh, over and over again, that, uh, you know, uh, musicians weren't treated, uh, you know, like mythic creatures uh, uh, before uh, the rock and roll age. And, um, you know, now, uh, it seems that the sun is setting on the musicians being treated that way, uh, again, uh, you know, uh, and you know, this, this, this is, this is not how music normally works. It just, you know, it became, you know, the language, uh, for at least two generations, if not three generations. Uh, and, um, uh, it's been replaced. Uh, uh, you know, music doesn't hold the same sway uh, that it, it did for, for people like you and I. Uh, you know, social media is, is the, you know, people have asked, well, what yeah. music does? You know, think it's hip hop or rap? And no, no, it's not music at all. It's, it's social media now is, holds the same place that music did for, you know, people of, of our age. So, um, you know, you, you quote Lennon in the book uh, after he gives back his MBE. Um, talking about the communist menace and American paranoia and him basically saying uh, America won't be overrun by communists. It will fall from within. Um, I think he was trying to quote Sen Tzu there, uh, the art of war. So uh, was he just prescient? <laughs> you, you, beat me, you beat me to the punch. Um, <laughs> uh, was he being prescient? Yes. Well, that's an, an interesting way of putting it. Um, you know, John, John, John was interested in politics, but there was a, also a certain naivety attached to it. Yoko was a very big influence uh, when it came to his political beliefs, but I don't think they were anything less than, than sincere. Was he being prescient? It's an interesting, it's an interesting observation. I mean, John Lennon would have been 80 this year. Yeah. And, and, and it's an intriguing question. Would he have been would he have been, you know, motivated by current American politics? I've asked myself that question. I mean, I'm a very keen student of American politics. I love reading about it, not just 
in the current climate, although the current climate makes it more febrile. And, and it, it, did, it did make me wonder, would Lenin, if he had been around, would he have been, would he have been motivated to, to speak out against the current administration? Um, the answer is, I don't know. I mean, John Lennon could easily, after double fantasy, if, if, if the cards had been different, decided that he didn't want to continue his public life. And maybe, you know, who knows? It's one of those what-if moments. Um, but I don't think he would have been a fan of the current administration. I think I could see that with some authority. I agree. Um, uh, <laughs> I think... I think he would have uh, uh, spoken up, and you know it's interesting that you you brought up that yeah, uh, you know, born in 1940, he would have been 80 this year, and it makes me think of uh, Danny Boyle's last film, uh, Yesterday, where uh, you know the the idea of of a world without the Beatles, what 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 you know, would they still have been huge? And you know, uh, you know, to, to Danny's movie, yeah, they still would have been. It's because of the songs. That's all that matters. Yeah, I mean, when I saw that movie, Christian, did I sit there, and my wife would tell you this, I sat there and thought, why didn't I think of that? Why didn't I? <laughs> I mean, think about it. It's so simple. Why the blazes did I not think of that? And I love the film. I think we all did. <laughs> why didn't I think of that? Because you're always looking for something that hasn't been done. Um, but the interesting thing about the, the Beatles' legacy and their enduring legacy, one of the reasons for it, perhaps is because of the tragic postscript that John Lennon brings to the whole story and, and his right. murder in 1980. Had that not happened, then you know, perhaps the story might not have had quite as much pathos to it. Um, but it's incredible to think, really, that uh, in December it'll be 40 years. Amazing, really. Yeah, so, yeah. Well, Ken McNabb, thanks so much for being with us on Deeper Digs today. Listen, Christian, it's been my absolute pleasure. I only hope people can understand this accent, a combination, as I said, between Sean Connery and Warren Bacall. Uh, <laughs> so, show Mr. Bond. Um, um, so I hope everybody's uh, been able to understand me. And I hope for, I'm, I'm absolutely delighted that the books and sale in America, that lots of friends in America never thought we'd get this far. It's been very well received uh, on this side of the pond. Uh, and America was the promised land for the Beatles. You know, it's where it all came yeah. from. It's where it all began. You know, they were they were such uh, enthusiastic backers of black American music, without which, uh, and they were always very keen to emphasize that point. And they loved America. And I think America, it's been shown over all these years that America has loved them back. And I can finish in a very- Very wise words. I can, very, I can finish, Christian, in a very Scottish way that this has been magic Christian. Oh, wow. 
I just have to say, as the rock and roll archaeologist, first of all, I just love anything about the Beatles. And Ken has done a great job of factually taking what we now know with, you know, 50 year uh, rear view mirror and piece all the contention, the infighting, uh, the little things that add pebbles to an already growing mountain of crap. Do go out and grab his newest book, and in the end, The Last Days of the Beatles, wherever you get your good reads, and especially if you're a Beatles nut. Also, his Beatles in Scotland is a a must-have for those fanatics, all right? Okay, Um, not much on my mind this week. Well, other than a little vacation from podcast land. Yep, I'm going to unplug um, probably the most I've done, certainly since the beginning of the pandemic, where I literally do work almost seven days a week. Um, uh, And probably even before that, um, yeah, probably since last year that I've been able to really, really unplug. So um, I'm looking forward to that. Um, But real quick. Uh, I don't know if it's just me, um, but we've, we found this interesting thing about the Beatles songs. Uh, whenever we go to find the perfect one for a situation, they almost all weirdly fit for whatever the occasion. Or, or maybe a, a set of songs to choose from always seems to fit. And there's always a Beatles song to fit any occasion. Weddings, funerals. Announcements, praise, melancholy, whatever your needs might be, Lennon and McCartney have what you want. It's weird. I haven't quite come across this with any other band. Usually I have to think about it, or worse, there is nothing exactly like I want to say subtly in a song that belongs in context to what I'm talking about, Um, especially in the Rock and Roll Archaeology podcast. The Beatles just seem to have a song that fits for any need. It's like the Hallmark card selection at your drugstore. Anyway, something for all of us to ponder while walking in the woods or not enough to sleep. Uh, Try it sometimes and you'll see. Uh, Whatever the occasion, there really is a Beatles song. Obviously, it speaks volumes to their universal appeal and even 50 plus years on uh, they are still part of the zeitgeist okay that's it for this episode next time i will be amongst friends and colleagues very excited about this upcoming show when pantheon podcast host of side jams brian reisman Uh, And dear friend of this podcast, and Brian, your dear friend as well, journalist extraordinaire Jeff Slate, join me to break down two old-time rock and roll films recently given the DVD upgrade treatment. Uh, Brian did the uh, new commentary on the David Essex and Ringo Starr vehicle from 1973, That'll Be the Day, uh, which is an early rock and roll tale set in 50s uh, UK, very different than, uh, you know, what was happening in America. The music, you know, crossed the oceans, but, uh, you know, the culture, the society, 
uh, were very, very different. Um, you know, uh, post-war uh, England was, you know, not experiencing uh, the boom and prosperity that uh, post-war America was, uh, and and that comes through in this in this picture. Uh, in 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 many instances, it's it's definitely one to to check out um, uh, and to get a different perspective on how um, the UK was uh, back in uh, the uh, you know the pioneering days of rock and roll, and then Jeff joins us where he and Brian provide the commentary on a film called Pop Gear. It was called Pop Gear in the UK, aka Go Go Mania in the States which is a collection of UK acts in 1964 uh, presented on camera, you know, kind of like for the kids to sample. Well, let's just say we all have a lot of fun and laughs, so make sure you come back for that one. All right, uh, that's it. I am off. Uh, Wish me luck, and hopefully I come back charged up and ready for more. Yeah, of course I will. Until then, I'll let Paul have the very last word. And you all, keep up the rockin'. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she doesn't have a lot to say. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, but she changes from day to day. I want to tell her that I love her a lot, but I gotta get a belly full of wine. Her Majesty's a pretty nice girl, someday I'm gonna make a mine, oh yeah, someday I'm gonna make a mine. Deeper Digs is hosted by Christian Swain. Produced by Christian Swain and Peter Ferrioli. Sound designed by Busy Signal Studios. Engineered by Jerry Danielson, Christy O'Donnell, and Leslie Barker. Find all of our shows, notes, and social links at PantheonPodcast.com. Contact us on social at Pantheon Podcast on Facebook and Instagram. Tweet us at Pantheon Pods. All songs can be found used in this podcast for purchase or streaming wherever you get your great music. Please pick up these amazing tracks. It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more Fantasy Points.